0: All right, we're in Matthew chapter 21. If you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device, Matthew 21. And our text this morning is gonna be verses 23 through 46. Matthew 21, 23 through 46. The topic, Jesus tells two parables that remind the Jews God provided all they needed to be his fruitful vineyard. The title of our message, Because You're Mine, I Tend the Vine. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. Uh, We're excited to be here because uh, this is a place, Lord, where you uh, have gathered us so that you can meet with us and manifest yourself in a special way. Lord, we know that you are everywhere. Uh, We know that we can worship you in spirit and in truth wherever we are, and we thank you for that. Uh, But you also promise, Lord, to be among your people in a special way when we gather together in your name. Uh, and we're doing that And we expect, Lord, to hear from you uh, We expect your spirit, Lord To speak to us from your word uh, Things that are precious and intimate and wonderful Too wonderful for us, Lord And yet you love us so much That you want to you tell us these things And So we thank you and we praise you In Jesus' name And those who agreed said, amen It's the question every parent dreads Sooner or later You're going to have to deal with it Are we there yet? Right? Am I right? I seem to remember a promo for The Simpsons in which Bart and Maggie keep asking over and over all across the country, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Homer keeps saying no. But just as he can't take it anymore and jumps into the back seat to throttle them, Marge grabs the wheel and says, I think we're there. Hard to believe it's only the second most annoying question children repeatedly ask, the first one being, why? The answer to that, of course, is always why not or Well, no, I can't say that. Anyway, I was thinking about questions because in our text, Jesus answered a question he was asked by asking a question of his own. Jesus loved to ask questions. It's been calculated that he asked between two and three hundred questions in the Gospels. Some of those are the same questions being reported by four different writers, but even allowing for repetition, the sheer number of questions Jesus asked was impressive, He did not answer questions by asking questions in order to be evasive. Quite the opposite is true in that the answer to his question would also answer the one that had been asked of him. With respect to the ask a question format of Jesus, I'll organize my thoughts around two questions this morning. Number one, what has Jesus told you to do? And number two, are you going to do what Jesus told you to do? Let's take a look, first of all, what has Jesus told you to do in verses 23 through 27. Now, as you're aware, this were, uh, was the last few days of Jesus on earth before his crucifixion, and it had been a busy week of ministry thus far, a busy few days. He'd made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, to the shouts of, Hosanna. He had overturned the tables of the money changers for the second time in his ministry stringing together a couple of prophecies from the Old Testament Saying it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves And he had spent time healing in the temple and now he was back there teaching the people Apparently Jesus was doing all that without a permit Because we read in verse 23, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Let me ask you this without... I don't want you to raise your hand, but is there anybody here who actually gets a permit for a garage sale? You know, I think you're supposed to. I think it's the law. And now that I've told you that, it's a matter of conscience. But anyway... uh, Do you need a permit if you're the Messiah? Do you need permission if you're the Son of God? Well, Jesus had not gone through the proper channels, or so the religious leaders thought, and so they felt they were on good ground challenging his authority to do the things that he was doing. There is such a thing as spiritual authority, by the way. Jesus will tell his disciples after his resurrection that all authority has been given to him, In Hebrews, we are told, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. God has likewise established authority in the home and family and in the governments that he allows to exist on the earth. And so we are not able, spiritually speaking, to ignore authority. We are to submit to it as God has determined it with the word as our guide. The question the religious leaders asked wasn't a bad one in general, but it was insincere since they could see that Jesus' authority came from God. Of course, he had the authority to be there. G. Campbell Morgan is a really good Bible expositor. Remember that name and grab his books at thrift stores. Uh, It it seems like... um, I don't know, maybe it Usually the books were published a long time ago They have that really tiny print, you know And uh, people don't like to read Morgan that much But if you find a G. Campbell Morgan book Grab that, add it to your library Um, He pointed out in this section That these religious leaders said Jesus was doing these things It was an admission on their part Jesus was doing things Good things, great things Things that only the Messiah could do He'd been doing them for the past three and a half years, healing all manner of illness and affliction, giving sight to the blind, causing the deaf to hear and the lame to walk, casting out all manner of demons, raising the dead. In a sense, that uh, part of their question was the answer to their question. So how are you doing these things? And they were the things that only the Messiah could do. So obviously, he had the authority of heaven to do them. Simultaneously, he'd been teaching... In a way no one had ever heard before, with a divine authority, with heaven's anointing upon each word. What would have been like to hear Jesus teach the Bible? Can you imagine that? I mean, you all have a favorite Bible teacher. For most of you, it's me. But you know, some of you have. There's a few other people out there. Maybe. I'm just kidding. We all have our favorite teacher who you would drive to see, and you think, "Man, that was just fantastic." Can you imagine Jesus teaching the Bible? it's mind-blowing uh... it's it's fantastic and so they had all of this many lives had been changed for the better both physically and spiritually by this itinerant rabbi there was no denying the authority but all of that is admitted when they say doing these things jesus has been doing things good things great things from that time right up to the present Changed lives are a powerful testimony of his authority and of the heavenly anointing upon him. Jesus wants to do things in your life and through your life. You are both his great work and one of his workers. You are to be being changed more into the image of Jesus while you simultaneously discover the good works the Lord has for you to accomplish in the power of his Holy Spirit. Don't forget you are the Lord's work. So often we get wrapped up in the work, doing something for the Lord, that we forget we are his workmanship. We are his work, and he is probably using the things that we're doing or that are happening in our ministry, both good and not so good, to work on us. And in the end, he's more interested in that work than anything else. Verse 24, but Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. It was not unusual in Jewish culture to answer a question with a question. I want to bring this back, by the way. I'm just going to ask people questions from now on. Uh, But in Jewish culture, it was a preferred method that rabbis used with their students. Far from being evasive or even disrespectful, the Lord was being gracious to these guys. Even though they had rudely interrupted him in the middle of a teaching, he was treating them with respect as if this was a genuine dialogue even though their hearts were wicked and accusatory. And so in verse 25, he says, "'The baptism of John, where was it from? "'From heaven or from men?' "'And they reasoned among themselves, saying, "'If we say from heaven,' He will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. Obviously, this is a lose lose situation for these guys. What is sad is that here they were, the religious and supposedly the spiritual leaders, but they were in a place where they could not honestly answer a simple question about themselves. If in your ministry you find you cannot give a straightforward, honest answer, something has probably gone very wrong. If you are taking evasive action, it's a problem. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be tactful or thoughtful. It doesn't mean we should blurt out things people have no business hearing. It doesn't mean we should lack sensitivity. It just means we shouldn't have a hidden agenda that requires stealth and deception. Our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, <clears throat> we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Their answer was a lie they told to protect themselves. It's like the guy who said, I always lie. Was he telling the truth? How can he be telling the truth about lying if he always lies? It's called the liar's paradox. I always lie you don't know if he's telling the truth or he's lying now Jesus question was not just to avoid giving them an answer if they would have answered his question they would have answered their question if they admitted that John the Baptist was sent with the authority of heaven then they would have admitted Jesus had heavenly authority John had introduced Jesus as the one who was mightier than I whose sandals I am NOT worthy to carry He had initially refused to even baptize Jesus, saying to him, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. John made it clear that Jesus would increase and that he, John, must decrease. He had declared plainly and boldly that Jesus was God's lamb who would take away the sins of the world. Receive John's ministry, and you receive Jesus, since John was the herald and Jesus was the king that he heralded. Say no, John the Baptist was not heaven sent and you reject Jesus but then you're in denial because it was evident to everyone that John was indeed a prophet sent by God. People seem to have a lot of questions for God. Most of them are accusatory like why do bad things happen to good people or why did you allow this, those kinds of things. So people are constantly questioning God. In most cases, he would answer them with a question of his own, like, who do you say that I am? So if a person's going to question God and say, hey, why are you allowing this? Why did you allow this tragedy? Why is this evil taking place? You have to first answer, well, who do you think I am? That you would ask me a question like that. Do you believe that I am omnipotent and Can solve problems like that? Do you believe I'm omniscient? Do you believe that I love you? What do you believe about the Lord? And so, before you can even begin to answer a question like that, you have to ask that other question Who do you you say that I am? Uh, Do you think I'm just a genie in a bottle that? You know, If something bad is going to happen, you need to just say, hey, God, take care of that. I, I can't have that happening in my life. And so uh, there are a lot of important questions that we need to answer. And if we answer that question, who do you say that I am, it, we discover the answers to everything else, do we not? Jesus, of course, is the sinless son of God. He's the unique God-man who died on the cross as substitute to take upon himself your sins and provide for you his righteousness. Now There's an important application for us in Jesus' question and question session with these religious leaders. God wants you to act upon what you already know and what he has already asked of you, often before he gives you further direction. Take these religious leaders as an example for us. If they had received the ministry of John the Baptist, they would not be asking Jesus ridiculous accusatory questions about his authority. Instead, they'd have had their lives changed. They'd be in the crowd, soaking up the greatest teaching ever heard by men from the lips of the Son of God. It was useless to answer their question since they had refused the revelation God had already given them. Sometimes, not always, but occasionally, when you feel like you're spinning your spiritual wheels, it's because God has already asked you to do something. He's told you what he wants, but you're just not doing it. Maybe you disagree with what he's asking you to do, or more positively, but just as disobediently, you don't feel adequate to accomplish it. On the adequacy issue, I encountered a quote from J. Hudson Taylor this week, the great missionary, who said, all of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. If you ever think you are adequate for a spiritual task, because of something like your spiritual discipline or effort or intelligence or whatever, you need to think again. God is in the business of doing what is beyond your abilities. If you and I are just doing what is within our own abilities because of our own spirituality, then we're not doing what God has set before us. Because the record that we have here in the Word of God, Old Testament and New, is that God goes way beyond anything any man could be expected to do. You might be spinning your wheels because you disagree with God, or at least with regard to the approach that he wants you to take. He wants us, by his Spirit, to humble ourselves, to put ourselves last and others first, to return blessing for cursing, things like that. Uh, we don't like to do those things. And we can sometimes... Uh, kick against those things and and in particular situations say well Lord I know you want me to humble myself but in this situation I think that would be just the wrong thing to do if I give my wife an inch she's going to take a mile if likewise my husband if I give him an inch he's going to take 20 miles Uh, you know how it is and so I have to I'm going to draw the line right here I know you want me to humble myself and win my husband without speaking a word or Lord I know you want me to love my wife the way you love the church but but in this case we need to have a dialogue here, and, and you know, you, you're just gonna keep spinning your wheel. A lot of people, that's what they do in their marriages, since we're talking about marriage. I use marriage as an example because people understand that, they relate to it. And some people, they just spin their wheels in their marriage all the time. It, it's like you know, doing donuts on your lawn. You know, and you're just, You never get anywhere, and you just tear up your lawn, and pretty soon the grass looks greener on the other side. Not because it is, but because you've tore up your lawn spinning donuts on it. By the way, I, we used to do that in Southern California. Sorry. I didn't, but I was there when it happened. Does anybody even know what I'm talking about? The, okay, yeah. My friend, Stephen Kassler, I can talk about him now because he's, uh, he's he, you know, he's not here. But uh, anyway, he had a 64 uh, Chevelle and, and we used to just get on people's lawns and honk the horn, and when they looked outside, he would just tear up their lawn. This is before cell phones and stuff like that. But anyway, this felt like I should tell you what my background is. <laughs> <laughs> so here you are tearing up, because you're just spinning your wheels. You won't humble yourself. You won't forgive your wife. You won't forgive your husband. You just keep it going until you've, you've ruined your lawn, ruined your house. I don't know what it is for you that might have you stuck in a rut. God does, and he wants to show you and then yoke up with you to pull you out of the rut and get you to your next spiritual destination. That's the good thing about this. When, when the Lord says, hey, I see you down there in that rut, then, you know, then as soon as you admit it, He yokes with you and he pulls you up out of it and you continue on your walk with him. And so jot this down if you want to. God, what do you want me to do for you? In a while, we're gonna give you time to reflect on today's study. And if you need something to think about, if you go blank at that moment, this would be a good uh, uh, question to answer during that time. Now, in case the religious leaders didn't fully grasp what Jesus was telling them, he told two parables to illustrate it. And our second point, are you going to do what Jesus told you to do? Facebook seems overrun with questionnaires. Have you noticed that? Those of you who do Facebook, there's a questionnaire. Every other post is a questionnaire. The ones I'm thinking of ask you a series of questions to see what state in the United States most suits you, or what Disney prince or princess you are, or which character you're most like in Star Wars. Yesterday, there was this one. What classic novel describes you? Delete, that's the one. Yeah, just don't, don't be doing that stuff. They're collecting information on you. And you're gonna have to wear a foil hat pretty soon. But anyway. <laughs> so uh, I don't do any of those. You can, they're, they're kind of fun. I, I like to see your answers, you know, and then I think, well, yeah, that person is Les Miserables. But anyway. Uh, in the parable Of the two sons, you need to figure out which son you are. And let me give you a hint. You don't want to be the second son. So verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. And then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. This parable and the next are set in the vineyard. Every Jew listening to it would recognize Israel as God's vineyard from the famous Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. It's a a very, very key, pivotal uh, section of the uh, writing of Isaiah. It's a remarkable passage, really. In it, the Lord illustrates his love for his people as if he were the owner of a vineyard and they were his vineyard. One commentator summarized it. He said, nothing was left undone to guarantee a bountiful crop. The Lord had great expectations of his vineyard. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower, not a temporary hut in it, and cut out a wine vat as well. Nevertheless, the vineyard did not produce, leading the owner to exclaim, this is from Isaiah, what more could have been done for my vineyard than what I have done for it? The answer is nothing. And then the song of the vineyard in Isaiah ends on this ominous note, I will lay waste to it, it shall not be pruned or dug, there shall come up briars and thorns, I will command the clouds that they not rain on it. Now, the time of this judgment upon Israel as the Lord's vineyard was at hand. And these two parables fill in some additional details as to why it was so. So verse 31, which of the two sons did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Ouch! That had to sting, especially in front of the crowd that included former tax collectors and harlots. Tax collectors and harlots were the most despised on the one end and the most degenerate on the other end of sinners. But really, they represent all those who are not part of the spiritual elite, all those that are not scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, what you might call just run-of-the-mill sinners. If the first son in the parable represents tax collectors and harlots, in what sense did they initially refuse to enter the kingdom? Well, probably in the sense that they continued in their sin despite knowing the law of Moses. We shouldn't give them a pass, but we can lay some blame at the feet of the religious elite. The Pharisees especially made it so hard to keep God's law that the average sinner was overwhelmed Jesus once described them as heaping huge burdens on people and then refusing to lift a finger to help them carry their load. He was referring to all the crazy external rules they added to God's word that a person was expected to keep in order to be righteous. And so if you were a tax collector or a harlot and you wanted to get right with God, The Pharisee would just heap all of this stuff on you like he'd say, well, you need to start by tithing from your herb garden. What? you need to get your oregano leaves out and count out nine for yourself and one for God. Nine, one. I was working with oregano the other day, you know, the dried up kind. Can you imagine having to do that? Even if you just weighed it out, you know, here's my 10% oregano for God. And that was just the tip of a huge iceberg of rules and regulations. And so it was discouraging. You know, if you had to be a full time Pharisee in order to just keep track of, of the rules of righteousness that they had added. And so uh, they made it hard for people. Now, when John the Baptist came, the sinners regretted their sin. The word there is repented. They believed John, they were baptized, and they were waiting entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Had the nation received Jesus Christ as their king, these repentant tax collectors and harlots would have been its chief citizens. The religious elite only acted as though they were obedient to the law of Moses. They were all about the externals, ignoring any internal transformation. They went out to see John baptizing, but they refused to repent at his preaching, and they were rejecting the one John pointed to as their savior and Lord. And so they were clearly, unmistakably, the second son in this parable now while they were still reeling jesus told another parable of the vineyard he says in verse 33 here another parable there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country now when vintage time drew near he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit And the vine dressers took his servants beat one killed another stoned another Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. The leaders of Israel are represented by the vine dressers, who were responsible for cultivating, pruning, and tending God's vineyard to produce a bountiful spiritual harvest. The servants who were sent represent the prophets whom God sent over and over again throughout Israel's history to call them to repentance and obedience in order to produce fruit. Look at any of the prophets, for the most part, and see how they were treated as they came seeking repentance from the Jews. The leaders of the nation routinely killed God's prophets. In an amazing display of patience, God continued to send prophets to try to woo his wayward people. It was to no avail. Graciously, God provided one final opportunity by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to Israel. He too was about to be rejected and killed by Israel's leaders. Verse 40 Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, well, he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Now, they must not have realized that they were passing judgment upon themselves. People do this in a different way today. I've had people tell me somewhat jokingly, but somewhat seriously that they know they're going to hell when they die, or at the very least that they're, they're not going to heaven. Have anybody ever done that to you? Just kind of just, oh, you know, I'm going to go to hell when I die because I'm, I'm not a very good person. Well, if you believe that, you better do something about it while there's still time. That's not anything you want to be joking about because you're passing a judgment on yourself, and you may not realize it, but it's, it's accurate. And so, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus changed illustrations and began talking about a building, The figure of a stone is often found in Scripture, Jesus being referred to both as a foundation stone and the head of the corner. Jesus is God's chief cornerstone upon whom the kingdom of God would and yet will be built. The builders were the religious leaders who rejected him. That they would be ground into powder anticipates the very real destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by Titus and the Roman legions that he commanded. Whoever falls on this stone was Jesus' way of describing a person who would receive him and be saved by humbling him or herself. God is not willing that any should perish. The Lord wept over Jerusalem, knowing they would reject him and bring destruction and dispersion upon themselves. It brought him no joy. Who or what is the nation that the kingdom will be given to? Uh, John Walvoord says, and I quote, the word nation is without an article in the Greek and probably does not refer to Gentiles specifically. In other words, it doesn't refer to a specific nation as we would call it today, but perhaps just to a people group. It might mean anyone, Jew or Gentile, from any nation who brings forth fruit during Jesus' absence in between his first and second coming. In that sense, we could say the church throughout the age in which we live uh, is that nation. It undoubtedly refers in the future to the nation of Jews who will survive the Great Tribulation. The kingdom will be offered again, and at the end of the seven years, the Lord will return, and the remnant of Israel will be saved. And then Jesus will establish the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. Verse 45, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Have you ever had someone actually realize you were calling them personally a sinner? I mean, you, you, sometimes we share the gospel and we're saying that, but people don't really get it. And then all of a sudden a light goes off and they understand that you're talking to them as if they're Adolf Hitler and, and, and that they deserve what a person like Adolf Hitler deserves. It can be kind of scary, but at least you know that the word of God is convicting them, and for that you could be glad. It's a little harder to put yourself in this parable because it's so specific to the vineyard and to Israel's leaders at the time Jesus was on the earth. It's clearly and unmistakably a parable of the vineyard, which is Israel, but there are some principles we can glean from it. For example, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not saved or a person's not saved, in a very real sense, you are rejecting God's prophets and ultimately you're rejecting his son. There's a sense in which you can see yourself as as whenever the word of God is brought to you as, as rejecting God's prophets and rejecting his son who died for you. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. If you don't believe... His death is sufficient for you, but you're left dead in trespasses and sins. The good news is that sinners can yet repent. They can come to the Lord and receive Him. Now, in a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to do just that. And I'd encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to confess your sin and call upon your Savior. Now, it's harder to put believers into this parable. Here's what we can say from our study this morning. Jesus' initial effort in the opening fray was to show these guys they had not done what God had told them to do. They had not repented at the preaching of John the Baptist, and so they were stuck in a particularly deep spiritual rut. God sent John to prepare the way of Jesus, and their hearts should have been ready, should have been prepared, For his ministry, leading up to the day he came into Jerusalem, they should have been in that crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. But they weren't because they had failed earlier on. They had failed to repent at the preaching of John the Baptist, and they were stuck there. If you have not done something Jesus has told you to do, the question this morning is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, Now, I don't know what that is, obviously, and you might not have a handle on it right now either, but as we spend time with the Lord here in just a second, uh, ask the Lord, because he, wants to, he doesn't want to just show you. He wants to get you up out of that rut, get you to where he's yoked together with you again so that you can go forward doing things through him, with him, empowered by him, that are beyond your own abilities to do. Uh, and so uh, what is it maybe that... Uh, Maybe it goes back decades, maybe it's as fresh as this morning, Uh, maybe it's something the Lord will put on your heart right now. Uh, What does the Lord want you to do and what are you going to do about it? Let's pray together.